Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Take a look at the trailer for Fat Kid Rules the World. player. We're actually in a band. We're punk rock, I guess. Why did you tell my dad that we're going to be in a band? Because we are. I'm going to play guitar. You're going to play the drums. Oh, God. Is that what you're wearing? Dude. Yes. I was stupid and didn't know what punk was. You showed it to me. You might want to reconsider your choice of friends, son. Thank you, Mom. Women love musicians, man, especially drummers. Hey, Isabel, would you be my girlfriend and have sex with me, like, as soon as possible? Who wouldn't? <gasps> Why do we have to break into your house if you live here? We need to go right now. What? Just sucking your I am sucking in my gut. I can't wait, man. I have to go right Where now. Are you going? Kick my Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator from KCRW's The Treatment, Elvis Mitchell, and tonight's guest, Matthew Lillard. I'm sorry, it's Phil Matthew Lillard. <laughs> no longer just an actor. No. But one of the things that's so cool about this is you found guys who look just like they described in the book. I mean, he's called Kurt in the book, but he looks just like a blonde ferret. I mean, how, how important was it to you to find somebody who physically represented these guys in real ways? Well, certainly Troy, who, um, so Jacob Waisaki, who plays Troy in the, in the book. Um, it and was in the film. And in the, yeah, in the film, sorry. Uh, you know, it was important to me, not necessarily his mask, but he had to have that, um, he had to be out of place. You had to put him in a situation, like, you had to, we put him in clothes, and, and uh, he had to have a, um, a presence about him. And you know that, and that, then that was difficult because in LA, you know, we don't make a lot of those size people, even though they're all across America. It's hard for them to find success in our business in Hollywood, uh, and finding him was difficult. And he actually became a piece of the. He, he was the linchpin for our financing. You basically made a short with him, right? We did, and and that and the idea behind the short was a. You know, we sat down and they liked the, you know the production companies, Whitewater Films. They liked me. And I had a whole business idea going in that we put on the Vans Warp Tour. And they loved that idea. But we did a short to find out if, A, we liked each other, like if we could work together, uh, if I could direct at all. And had you not directed before? I hadn't. I mean, I directed theater and I directed a couple of videos. I mean, I had this idea that if I collected a bunch of things, if I shot a bunch of things, eventually, minor things, tiny things, eventually somebody was going to let me do a movie. And I had optioned this book 10 years ago. Wow, because you've been doing acting workshops and that kind of thing for or the last few years, have you not? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, in fact, I think that the acting, I teach acting and 
I think it's the teaching of acting that gave me the confidence to know that I could direct a movie because that gave me the confidence that I could elicit great performances out of people. Um, what directors did you sort of take your lead from? Because I know people don't think about this, but Wes Craven is a director who really takes actors very seriously. And, and you must have got some things from him, but who else did you sort of take a lead from? Well, I, you, you kind of get... I mean, look, I've been acting since I was 13. I'm 42. So I've been acting a huge percentage of my life. And it, it's kind of like you are, you are the director. Um, the director you are is the man you are. It, it, it's kind of like being a parent. So you can ask somebody about, hey, what do you think about being a parent? And they'll give you ideas, but it's really walking in the shoes of being a, an, a parent that defines you. Um, and so for me, the actor I am kind of defined the director I was. Um, so I didn't really take any specific thing. I mean, look, you get pieces from everyone. I mean, Alexander gets unbelievable coverage. You mean Alexander Payne. Alexander Payne gets unbelievable coverage. And I just come off The Descendants. And, um, you know, he, his whole idea is like collecting options like Kurosawa, and putting together the movie in post. So there's elements of that we, we try to accomplish. I mean, we're like, you know, a 23-day shoot and $750,000 budget. So we are running and gunning and making things happen as fast as we possibly can. So, you're, you know, you're, you're taking elements from people all across your life. One of the things I want to say about the movie is that it goes from sort of real-time stuff to the fantasies in Troy's head. And the fantasies are so potent that when he has a scene where he gets really sick, on stage, I thought that was one of the fantasies. I mean, because it's that's so kind of surreal. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it is, I think. I mean, my answer to that is, look, we, so in this movie, there's this huge epic puke scene. Um, like gallons, like yeah, Carrie. Yeah, it's really, yeah, it's kind of like, it's stand, we blow Stand By Me away. Um, <laughs> and The Exorcist too. Yeah, I mean, we really throw vomit everywhere. And we're pretty proud of that moment because it's never been done in a movie because what we did is, we created a prosthetic and we ran tubes up through his back and then out the mouth. And you know, normally when you shoot a puke scene, it's from the side or from behind. But we had figured out a way to kind of shoot it out his mouth and shoot him for, you know, and the front. Yeah, yeah. for the front. So um, we did this huge epic scene. And w the way I cut it in our rough cut, um, you know, we only had two, two explosions. And our producer, to his credit, Rick Rosenthal, is a filmmaker for years and years, said, we need a bigger, we need bigger explosion. We need more puke. And so for me, the third puke really becomes about the experience in his mind, that, that, that that's his reality. Um, you know, I love that scene. It's one of, probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie because we go from that, and it's hilarious, and people are like, oh, and there's like a great Capra line from Matt O'Leary. And it's right out of the book that the Capra line is, yeah, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we try to keep as much of the book in the movie as we could, but we go right from that to the dad character, Billy Campbell, disassembling the, the drums. And, you, you know, you, you twist it on its, you know, on its ear. You flip it on its ear. And I think that... You know, that's one of those things that I learned from Alexander Payne and watching Descendants and how, you know, we keep trying to, we keep, I mean, for us, it was important to be respectful of the story and respectful of these characters and keep it real. Um, and every time you think you have a cliche and every time you, you know, we're going down the middle, we flip it a little on, it, on what you expect. Well, I listened to the audio book before I watched the movie just to sort of get myself in that head because you found it by doing the audio book, right? And you really throw yourself, I mean, you want to use the word pour after vomit, but you really pour yourself into the reading of that book. It's like you connected with that material immediately, wasn't it? 
Yeah, you know, the, cr the crazy thing is that I, um, you know, 10 pages into this book, 20 pages into reading the book on tape, I had tears running down my face. And I did something, look, I've never been offered a book since. I'd never done one before. Um, and I just had this crazy emotional experience. And I, But you're yeah. really acting the book out in a way I've never heard anybody do that before. I mean, there are times that, that there's a, that sequence... Uh, sort of late in the book, when they really, when all the walls come down for Kurt, and I can feel how moved you are in the reading of that section. Yeah, it's, but that was the thing about the book is that it had this. I had this emotional experience, and all the way through the reading of the book, I was like, you know, it, it was it was a big deal, and I had this epiphany through it, and that's what prompted me. You know, it's funny. I didn't become a director because I was looking for something, and this came along. I, you know, I've always wanted to do it. I found this book 10 years ago, and I've held on to it ever since, trying to get it made, trying to get it made, trying to get it made. And making a movie in Hollywood about an obese teenager who finds punk rock music that saves his life is no easy task. I'm sure they said, yeah, we'll do it, but can you make him really skinny and just kind of cute? Yeah, can he be a vampire? Does he have a gun? It'd be really cool if he had a gun. Well, you should do that version yeah. of it. <laughs> that's the sequel. But it's, it's, that's the thing is, and you guys should, if you can find the audio book, which you can, you should listen to it because you really are in that, that reading heart and soul. There's no distance in that. Yeah, I, I thank you. I mean, it means a lot to me because, the, you know, that's the thing that inspired me to call Kelly, the author, and say, you know, beg her and say, listen, I, I have, um, I was moved by the book and it means a lot to me. Like, I was this kid, like, you don't become an actor unless you're a straight dime and out to make gazillions of dollars and have amazing abs. You don't become an actor because you fit in anywhere else. You become an actor because you're lost, because you suck at sports, you're not great in school, and you're trying to find a place to fit in. And actors and acting classes in the world accept you. And that's how I, you know, and that's how I, and acting changed my life. And for me and this kid, and this kid in the beginning of the book's about to throw himself in front of a bus, and you know, finds punk rock music, and I saw myself in that kid. And that's the thing, our movie isn't about obesity or fat kids. Our movie's really about underdogs and people finding their place in the world and walking through life with owning that space. Well, what's fascinating to me about this adaptation is you found a way to bring the humor that's in a lot of those interior monologues to the movie. And let's, we have a scene that illustrates that. We can take a look at this, this first clip. That's the best, most natural throw I've ever seen in my life. That was good. That was much I've been rehearsing this all night. You are so talented. Can we take a look at the clip now? Why do we have to break into your house if you live here? Because it's my mom's house, and I lost my keys. I had them, and then all of a sudden the sink, and then I lost it. God, I'm in, I'm in. Okay, get my stuff and then meet me at the front door. Oh. Come in, come on, come on. Nobody's here. Let's go. Get in. Shut the door. You know, they want me to stay here, but it's like, I just can't do it. <laughs> I mean, I love my mom, but it's this asshole hypocrite she married. It's just a hypocrite asshole! Ugh. Ugh. I mean, this is the intellect we're talking about. He reads the TV guide from cover to cover. I don't need that shit. I mean, I'm telling you, dude, they'll be sorry when I'm touring on a jet, swimming in money. I'm literally going to do that. Oh. Dude. More bands should do this, wear matching outfits. Because then you're not just a band, you're a gang, right? I need this. I need that. And we got to play this right now. 
It's the best side A opening to an album ever. What? This is the best side A opening to an album ever. Right? It's good. Yeah, it's good. So what are you into? Asheron's Call. What? Asheron's Call. It's a multi-massive online role-playing game. You play online with a bunch of people. I play with this guy, his name's Cane Balls. <laughs> no, man, like what kind of music are you into? All kinds. Like rock, punk rock? Uh-huh. Yeah? Uh-huh. I knew you were cool, Tony. I knew it. Have you heard of my band, POI? Uh-huh. Thank you, Mom. I love you. <laughs> so, you play an instrument? Am I right? You play one. Uh, bass drum? Drummers, man, that's smart. Because everybody's a freaking guitar player these days. <laughs> I need a bag. Oh. Shit, shit, what? we need to go right now. What? It's the hypocrite asshole I was talking about. All right, just suck in your gut. I am sucking in my gut. Can't wait, man. I have to go right now. He's gonna kick my ass. Um, there's a great. A really terrific tag in that scene that also shows what a great actor he is too. I mean, the, the scene with, with with uh, with Mark's father is a really funny beat after that too. Yeah, it's funny. He um, so that that beat is when he's knocking on the door. We when we shot the short, um, we didn't have a way to get him out. So we came up with that on the day. You know, there's independent filmmaking. You know, in a big film, you'll throw money at problems. You'll just buy your way out of situations. Well, you build another house so you yeah. can like build a way out. Yeah, <laughs> well, you find the house. You keep looking until you find the house. Um, but the reality is that you know, independent filmmakers, you're continually being confronted with obstacles, and it's just a matter of how you get around it. Because, again, too, in that scene, we get to see how fast he thinks on his feet and everything. That really kind of crystallizes a lot of the stuff in the book where he, he's playing all these things out in his head, including the, the many kind of worst-case scenario fantasy scenes that he has in his head. Well, yeah, he's smart. I mean, that's the thing that was important to me. I wanted them, I wanted them all to be smart. I wanted to treat our characters with respect. Same thing with the dad character. It was important to me to give them dimension and depth and treat them with respect, and then treat the audience with respect. I think so often we fall into these cliches, and you, you know we're pushing and pushing and pushing characterization instead of and you get, creating been, characters. But the dad looks like a stereotype, you know? Sure. He's a security guard, flat belly, crew cut. You can sort of tell he's trying to force his son to be him, but again, you take something else in the book where the book is basically about nobody being what he seems, and you make the dad that too, don't you? Yeah, and it's, you know, and it's again, going up as many times as we can is being respectful to our characters and telling an original story, which is one of the things that we're proud of, uh, you know, in terms of the film. Because one of the things that you're talking about, Alexander, that he does really ably, that you've done very well in this, is sort of keep, like, the drama and the comedy basically balanced in the same scene. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, you know, if you can, if you can deliver a message, if you can be honest, tell a story with high emotional stakes, and still giving people the release or letting them into the journey with a smile on their face and entertaining them. You know, so often I think that independent filmmakers were making the most 
dramatic and dark versions of every story in the world. And we're forgetting the journey of the audience. And to me, look, I'm not that guy. I wanted to, you know, every time, it's funny, it, he comes out and he has that, the, the pills, and he's a junkie in the whole movie. He's a junkie and he's, he sees in Troy the free meal and they, they're and He's get, also they're kind of an opportunist. He's an opportunist, but, yeah. but he's an opportunist with a big heart. Yes. Which is weird. It's, but yeah, and he, he's broken. And he really wants love and he wants friends. But that him doing that with the drugs made us in our film. Because he does it two more times and we couldn't cut it. So the NPAA gave us an R rating. Even R just because he holds drugs in his hand. Yeah. Because this kid, and so our movie that's built for kids who are lost, that's built for a kid out there who's like about to jump in front of a bus, is a victim of this rating board that makes no sense to me and it's really a shame and it's funny because I watch the movie I see that and I'm like because of this thank you mom he steals it he it becomes an R-rated movie but you you tell me about the, the 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 great program you have for kids to see the movie talk a little bit about that so yeah so we um so what happens we won the audience award at South by Southwest yay yay um, and in that, we thought for sure, okay, you know, we got great reviews. Uh, we actually have 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Yay! Yay! And it doesn't look like a sucky movie, does it? It looks pretty good, yay! Well, if you, if you must say so yourself, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, look, we, you know, in, in this moment of like winning this award, here we are at South by Southwest, we're like, okay, somebody's gonna see what we see. Somebody's gonna see what the audience sees, and they're gonna buy it. We're not that expensive a movie. We're a micro-budgeted film. Um, and every offer that we got was no minimum guarantee, and basically, we, all of our money coming back to pay for the, you know, not to pay me, but to pay back the investors was going to be buried, you know, in 30% fees. And so basically want you to give them the movie and exactly. if they made some money, maybe for the investors, so what? Right. And we said, no, we're not doing it. Well, screw you. So what we did is we basically turned them all down. We went out and raised $158,000 on Kickstarter. 8000 over your budget, over 8, your target. 000, yeah, in 33 days. And that was based on a couple of things. One, we have a huge social media outreach with the book. Mike McCready of Pearl Jam did our music. Um, it's a great score. It's a really great score. For it's, he's did an amazing job. I made mistakes as a first-time filmmaker that he you covers said, up. What do you mean? You say you made mistakes. What I know. It's that? so crazy, isn't it? Yeah. But to admit in front of people. Oh, yes, that yeah. Is I made tons of mistakes. I mean, we, you know, it's funny. I'm looking at that scene. We shot that entire sequence, him getting out of the house, running away. The same night we shot everything in the punk rock club where he pukes. Oh my God! You did. You That's in the same day. How long was that day? Uh, it was a long day. That was a long day, and into the night, and it was a split, and it was just one of those things that you were gunning and gunning and gunning and running and running and running, and you don't know how. You know, I don't know how we made it, um, but we did, and that's that comes back to preparation and overworking. You know, what you don't have in time and money, you make up for preparation and endurance and hard work. So probably in a lot of ways, over the last ten years, you've been training to make this film, haven't you? Well, it's certainly been in my mind. I, I just want to go back real quick. Sorry, $158,000. We used that to put the movie on, on the Vans Warp Tour. So we made this movie for a demographic. We made this movie for the same kids that loved SLC Punk. We made this movie, you know, like Tyler Perry does for an African-American community. He makes this movies. This for the African-American community? Wow. It is. The, the people of America will love it. Um, but, you know, he goes for a specific demographic. We're going after a very specific audience, which is this disenfranchised, disenfranchised little punk rock kids. Um, 
And so we put on the Vans Warped Tour, and when we didn't get an opportunity to, to sell it to distributor, we struck a deal with Tug. So if you go to TugTheFatKid.com, so T-U-G-G, TheFatKid.com, any kid in America uh, across the U.S. can set up a screening of our film in a local cinema. They pick the cinema, the time, the place, uh, and the date. They invite their friends, and as soon as they pre-sell anywhere between 40 and 60 tickets, the movie will screen... Uh, in that theater for one time and one time only. How many times have you done it so far? Has it happened yet? So the, the most screening requests Tug has ever had was 300. Uh, and the first eight weeks, we've had over 1,000 requests. Congratulations. Man. Yeah, really it's cool. really awesome. And so our goal is to find a way to find kids. You know, if kids are out there and they see the podcast or you're one of 20 people in the audience and you want to see it's the movie. It's raining outside. It's raining, yes. Staying? These used to be like one-tone shoes. Taylor Lautner would have this shit packed. Um, no, they wouldn't. No, <laughs> you wouldn't. Okay. Andrew Garfield would. We'll, we'll um, move on. We don't need Andrew. We got you instead. So anyway, so the kid that wants it and can, needs it can find it and hopefully we'll see it. And they make money doing it. I'm glad you brought up SLC Punk, though, because in a weird way, these two kids that you combine and you get Steve-O. Yeah, a little bit. There's no doubt. And look, I, you know, that's not a mistake. I have the privilege of walking down the street all the time and people are like, you know, SLC Punk changed my life. I know the impact that movie's had on kids. And so for me, you know, this is my attempt um, to make a sister movie to that and just be a part of that demographic in, those, in that fabric of kids. That almost makes you wonder if you could get SLC Punk made today because that's now like 13 years ago. Sure. It, you know, I think you... You could, in this market, I mean, you couldn't do it for that much money. Yeah, but the reality is, is that, you know, when we first optioned the book, I was, you know, my take was like, I'm going to do it for 10 million bucks. And as time passed and as, you, as we crept closer and closer to the actual starting the movie, you know, you realize that movies can be made for much less money. Um, you know, I did a movie called Spooner, which is Drake Doremus' first film, who did like crazy and I think incredibly talented. And, and douchebag. And douchebag. Um, and he's, you know, a great filmmaker, but he makes a movie and tells a story and doesn't need a lot of money to do that. Well, he made Douchebag for $26,000. Yeah, and it's crazy. You must have seen, too, that as you were shooting, being able to tell what you didn't need to do. I mean, you were some kind of editing the script as you were going along and shooting, weren't you? Yeah, we... You edit based on circumstance. I mean, we, you know, I had a shot list going into every day, and you adapt and overcome as it comes. You know, it's like, you know... As you're moving through the day, things are editing themselves as you go through. You're making choices as you go through. Well, what, what I was kind of really struck by in the, in the movie, too, is just the chemistry between these two guys. I mean, how important was that to you to find these guys who really connect? Well, it was so lucky. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's... Jacob did, did you not put them in a room together to let them see if they could work? Or? We did for a second. Um, but Jacob, you know, Jacob was one of three kids that came into audition. Um, so three kids, one out of three, and you put the camera on them, and, you, you know, it's funny, Mac gets a lot of attention, and Billy gets a lot of credit, and Lily, who's the girl, Lily Simmons is her first movie, people are like, who is she? But the reality is that movie is carried on the back of that kid's eyes, and he's just an unbelievably gifted and talented actor. And he also, we should say, too, he's got a lot of scenes by himself, so he's got to hold the screen for a long period of time on his own. Yeah, I mean, he opens the movie taking his shirt off. I mean, we got that out of the way. We're like, let's look at his body, let's get it out of the way. 
And the rest of the movie, you know, that's something you know you want to do from the outside just to set it up so people knew what they were seeing. Yeah, I just wanted to be like, okay, it's called Fat Kid Rules the World. Let's just look at him. And he's in silhouette, and it's a beautiful shot, but you see his mass, you see his body. And so, like, we, you know, we kind of moved through it quickly. Um, you know, it was important to kind of, it's the elephant in the room. And it was important to kind of start the tone of the movie, just like, okay, this is what it is. It's not a movie that ever makes a joke at his expense. That's true, but were you worried about maintaining that tone? Because, like I said, it does, like, any misstep could, like, send it veering off into nothing but slapstick. Or, or nothing but drama. And, and for a first-time director to take an intimate story like that that really demands balance must have been really intimidating for you. It, it is. It, um, it really is. And, and, and I go back to, you know, it's a, look, everyone's, even Alexander says, I'm going back to Alexander Payne a lot, not a bad guy to go back to, but, you know, he spends a lot of time in casting, we got lucky with Jacob. Matt, we saw everyone. I mean, we saw the, the town. But he had an energy about him. And Again, this, a blonde ferret. I mean, you really yeah. found somebody who embodied what, the way he's described in, in Goins' book. Yeah. And, you know, staying true to the book. But it, he's a kid that, a great story. You know, we gave him the lyrics. There's a, a, a song in the, in the movie called Fat Kid's Revenge. And I sent him the lyrics. And an hour later, he sent me back... The, the music and had written and performed an entire song and recorded it on in an hour. And he's the guy you'd be like, hey, Matt, I need a little more here. And he's like, yes. Yes, and. It's always with him. He would give me more and more and more, and I'd shave it back here and shave it back there or push him a little there. But he's that thing. He's like a racehorse. And you just ride him, and you, he'll do anything. And together, the two of them, you know, the funny thing is we didn't have a lot of money, and we put them in the same house. And together, you know, separately, they came to me like, I don't know if I want to live with this kid. I don't know this kid. And in the, within the first three hours, they were inseparable the whole time. And now they're like best friends. But I want to get back to saying that these guys are really, if you split Steve-O from SLC Punk, because there is that sort of thing with Steve-O is partially kind of a watchful guy, especially when he was at home. When he was out, he was a mile-a-minute talker. He's kind of like a, a, a thoroughbred on Thorazine. And... and were you conscious that this is kind of like two halves of a character that you would popularize? Because it seems pretty evident to me. Yeah, <clears throat> there's no doubt. I mean, look, I see, I like me as an actor. Uh, I like the work I do. And not in an egotistical way. I, I, like the, I like the kind of actor I am. How do you mean? How would you describe the kind of actor um, you are? I don't really, I, I think that I have a lot of energy and I believe that great acting comes out of energy. And I'm, I'm relatively fearless. I don't really give two shits. I'll go into any wall. If you say go into that wall, I'll do it blindly. It's a lot of times to my own detriment. I see the things I like about me in Matt O'Leary. Um, and so when casting him, you know, I, 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 I love watching him. And, I, you know, the word I, at some point during the shooting, I looked at um, my producers. And I, he's effortlessly brilliant. He will do anything, and he has colors in him that he's available to at all times. I mean, all the music's live in the movie. Wow. So we don't record and dub in. They did it in, like, they're playing as you're shooting, yes. Yeah, they're playing and shooting. Even the stuff in the club, all that stuff we wanted to catch live. And the idiosyncratic scratches and the stuff that are the mistakes are the things that we wanted. Um, 
you want it to feel like a real, a real yeah, punk club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they never do a movie. Because you know what you can, funny thing is, you can hear people's feet on the floor, yeah. which you never hear in movies. Right, that's funny. I mean, we, I mean, we went, that was our whole thing. We, um, in terms of the movie, we had this expression that started with the DP and I, which is dirty, pretty pictures. Um, so we, it was really important to us to capture beautiful images in a really kind of dirty, unset up way, high contrast. Um, and you know, we have a whole visual progression throughout the movie in terms of the lens sizes and you know the story and where they are at in story. And we use the lens to tell a lot of. But the also story. the way you light the rooms too. I mean, the rooms yeah. get brighter and brighter towards the end of the movie. Yeah, sure. And then you know the whole sequence at the end where he's moving up through the parking garage and. Um, you know, there's three. It's yeah, funny. He starts in the basement in that club yeah. to the rooftop. And he's got that great um, quote on the side of the of the uh, concert hall in Seattle. Um, so, the, you know, we have a lot of symbolism in the movie that we're proud of, and you know, things that nobody will ever to uh, will ever notice. But to us, it helped kind of define the film going through. You've been talking a lot about about Alexander, and one of the things that you do in or that you don't do in Descendants is that energy we used to seeing from you that comes pouring off you. We don't see. Yeah, he wasn't into that. He didn't want that, which I love. I mean, look, you know, I think that energy in my life very early on as an actor was used, <laughs> just like you know, bad acting. Really, it's what it got me attention, which got me the job, which ends up sometimes, a lot of times, end up being bad acting or chewing scenery. Well, what do you mean? How do you mean? I mean, you're just saying that you had directors who weren't protecting you, who didn't have your best interests at heart? Well, I don't think that they... I don't think that they did it maliciously. I don't think there's a lot of... Look, I don't think actors are versed very often in the ways of how to talk to actors, to be directors, honest. Because yeah, most directors don't come from acting, so yeah, and they they're worried about you, the shot. Yeah, and they look at you like they're trying to make their day, they're trying to get the shot, they're trying to please the producers and tell the story and please... But you know, a lot of times, acting's a department like anything else. And the reality is, is that people don't know what to make of actors and how to deal with them. Very rarely do you get somebody that can give you a note as a performer that you're like, oh, he's got my back, he gets it. Nuanced performances. And not only that, but you know, a lot of times when you're sixth, seventh, and eighth on the call sheet, they really don't give a crap what you're doing. Say a line, hit the mark, and don't screw up the shot. That's, I mean, that's not to, that sounds terrible, but that's the reality. They're trying to get their day and make their movie. And the reality is that they don't real, a lot of times, they don't really know how to help an actor get through something or to take something back or to shape a, a performance. Uh, if you guys have any questions out here, we have a microphone right here. Just raise, raise your hand and I'll bring it on over. I see a question in the front row on the opposite side. <gasps> Hi. Hey, Matt. Um, my question is, why was it um, important for you to delete your scene in Fat Kid? Because I know you were... You play Troy's counselor, and I want to know why did you feel it was important for you to delete that scene? That's a great question. Um, so I actually played, uh, there's a scene in the movie where Troy goes into the counselor's office, and I actually played uh, the character, I like to shave my head when I act, so, or when I direct, so I don't have to worry about my hair. I, uh, my favorite thing to do is walk around with a shaved head. So uh, I look like I do at the end of SLC Punk. So I played in the counselor's office. I play Steve-O grown up. And at the end of SLC Punk, he says, I'm going to buy into the system. I can make more changes inside the system than outside the system. 
So I thought it was an interesting idea or an homage to SLC Punk if I played Steve-O as a guidance counselor. Um, and so I wore, you know, wardrobe came up with the same outfit that I had at the end of SLC Punk. I had docks on and the same, um, the tie, the whole nine yards. And it ends up being a fantasy sequence. But at the end of the day, the sequence was too long. And if you believe in entertaining an audience and giving them a good time, you know, that sometimes things have to go and you have to kill your babies. And that was one of them that worked great in, on the paper, but at the end of the day, it slowed the movie down. And Did you show it to people and people reacted to that? No, it's funny. I didn't show it to anyone. In fact, you know, the, there's, there's three people, four people in the making of the movie that were, I couldn't do it without. So Rick Rosenthal is my producer. You're like the Bad Boys, right? The original Bad Boys, boys. yeah, yeah. And he's... Look, I, I br we brought the movie to third base, and he brought it around home. He's just an unbelievable mentor. Um, and then my DP and I were inseparable. And then my editor, it's very funny, so this is my story for you. So we edited as we were smashed at the end of summer and trying to get it ready for Sundance, because that's apparently the holy grail for independent filmmaking. We were... You mean where SLC Punk played. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, it's also like, you know, I was like, I, you know, you want to be there. You want to sell your film. It's a buyer's market. It's a director's market. So one of the things that my editor and I, her name's Michelle Witten, and she's unbelievable. I know Michelle. <gasps> yes, of course. Yes. That was so funny. So that's my editor, and she is divine and unbelievable. And I will tell you the God's honest truth. For me to pound through those days. And I'm a creature that likes being on set and I like the creative process and I like leading people towards a, um, a higher goal. But to sit in a room day after day, hour after hour, looking at stuff we'd already done was killer. And there are things that you kind of hold on to. And to, to me, I would fantasize about being on your show. Um, the treatment, to me, like I listen to it all the time and it became a, like a thing that I held on to and that would drive and get me through the day. And I'd sit there and be like, what do you think Elvis will ask? And as like a fantasy, you know, to get through the day. And it wasn't like, look, I wasn't like this weird obsessive dude. But to me, no, no, it, not at all. <laughs> it became this thing. I was like, that would be awesome. And there's things that you hold on to that represent success for me in this process. And that's one of them, to sit up here and talk to you. And I'm not... That's not a lie. That's no BS. That's the God's honest truth. There must be another question out there. There must please somebody ask something. Anybody? I see one in the front, but I also have in the back, so I'll be right there. Hi. Uh, yeah. Uh, SLC Punk is like one of my favorite movies ever, but I just wanted to know more about your personal connection with like punk rock or like the punk rock community or music. Yeah. You know the funny thing? It's not really in my world. I'm not a big music guy. You know, music means something to a lot of people and it moves their life. For me, I'm like, whatever's on is fine. And so you're Troy. Yeah, a little bit. I'm like, whatever. I mean, that's that sounds good. I, I mean, there's bands I love, but um, who do you love? What bands? Right now, I'll tell you. There's two bands: Alabama Shakes, great band. Um, I've got my kids listening. We're, we're putting on a lot of jazz, like Benny Goodman, right now. No kidding, like, so wow, we have like an old, like we have old records, and we bought this crazy old record player, and so my kids will go on and. We'll listen to Coltrane and Benny Goodman and yeah, my kids love it. So that and then, um, but to me, punk rock music is really about the energy. I mean, I've said it a couple times. To me, energy is electric to watch. When you watch somebody like Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I think is one of the finest actors we have in American cinema, you're watching his energy, and I think he's amazing. And so for me, punk rock music is a great backdrop 
to tell a movie with, you know, to tell a story with energy. But it's also a community because it's this thing people join into and remains a part of their lives forever. Yeah, I mean, we're a movie about an outcast. We're a movie about a kid who's trying to come up and find his place. And so that is what punk rock is. And, you know, back in the day, at least. Uh, yo, uh, the next we question. Have, yep, we have time for two more. We have one right in the front. Hi, Matt. Um, how come you don't do more period pieces? How come people don't do more period pieces? How come you, well, you don't? don't. Do <laughs> uh, why don't you? Pieces? Yeah, good question. You were pretty hot in Dungeon Siege, so. That's you Thank look, you. You look good in the armor. You're sexy. So. I'm a piece of ass, yes. <laughs> uh, look, the... Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of questions I have for the industry that we can take a moment right now and just ask, why am I not making more money? Why am I not Tom Cruise? Why so what, am kind I of, what kind of watches that you're wearing? Yeah, no. It's, okay. You know what's funny is I... So this is a good story. Well, it's not that good of a story. <laughs> you started now. Uh, no, I bought it. Um, I was doing Wing Commander in Luxembourg Your with first Freddie, Prince Freddie Prince Jr. Jr. Your first yeah, yeah. film with him. Yeah. yeah that's, you are amazing, dude. Um, it's freaky how amazing you are. See, my fantasy is justified. He loves Mine that joke. Mine too. You're hot. Um, I'm a piece of ass. So this, so and that was when Biggie had that song, Toy Rolly in the Sky, Wave Side to Side. So we went out, and I was making. I thought I was so rich. I think we made like I think I made 15 grand on the movie, which after taxes and agents and managers, you clear about 700 bucks. Which is almost it's almost enough to make a down payment on that watch. Exactly. And so I went to Luxembourg and I bought a Rolex 18 years ago and it's the only watch I've ever bought. Hey, see? And the somebody said that, and the cameraman on that movie said, if you ever get lost in the world, you can always sell your watch and get home. <laughs> so I bought this for Biggie <laughs> with Freddie Prince Jr. Much love, yes. We have our last question right here in the front row. That guy gets a question too. You spoke to the importance of SLC Punk and then that it was important for you again to get the movie on Warp Tour. So what I'm wondering is, what's next? SLC Punk was important then, and it was a different demographic now musically that's going to Warp Tour now, and the kids are very different, and of course the bands are very different. Was that a reason for it, to sort of bring it back to where it originally was and to get that mentality that's in the movie to those kids today? Yeah, I don't think people are serving that. I don't think people are serving those kids with respect. They're making movies for four quadrants. They're making movies for everyone. They're making Avengers. Yes, it's for those kids. It's being sold to those kids. They're making, you know, the Without a Paddles or the, you know, all these big movies are going to those kids. But the reality is, is that's really for everyone. They're trying to make huge blockbusters and try to hit all four quadrants. To me, I wanted to be really specific and make a movie for kids that aren't the coolest kid in high school. That isn't the kid that's like, oh, I know exactly who I am. I'm the captain of the quarter, you know, the, the quarterback, captain of the basketball team, football team, whatever. I wanted to make movies for a kid that was outside the box. And I just don't think there are a lot of people making those movies um, for those people. You know what I mean? And that's why. And then on top of that, I think if you get specific and say, I don't care about those people and that people. The reality is, I want these people. And if other people find it, awesome. But the reality is, I want to make these, I want to tell a great story for these kids. And anyone else who feels like that doesn't mean you have to be a kid. You can be, we had a screening last night, and this guy stood up and was like, 70 year old man. He's like, I can't tell you how much I love that movie. And I'm like, why? And he's like, because it's a great story. And America loves the underdog. And, you know, that's part of 
when given the offer to give a movie away, we said, no, screw it. We're going to bet on us and bet that people will find it. Yeah. Right in the middle. Let me ask you a question. Um, any more screen movies? Not for me. I died. <laughs> Make a note. If you're ever in a trilogy, don't die the first film. Because that sucks. And with that piece of science that this piece of ass just dropped on us, <laughs> let's thank Matthew Lillard for being thank here. Thank you guys. Today. Thank you very much. <laughs>